Guys, we have a new sponsor that I'm uber excited about because I've actually been on the market looking for one of these for a very long time. And if you're like me and you start researching and then you find all of these different ones and you don't know which one to buy, well, that's me. And then I just don't buy any of them. So we got hooked up with a company and they're called Air Doctor. It's an ultra HEPA filter. So this is a filter that's 100 times more effective than ordinary HEPA filters, and it's able to capture 100% of airborne allergens and pollutants. So what is that? Well, it's dust and pollen, it's mold spores, it's cigarette smoke, it's pet hair and dander, which thank goodness for me because I have a very cute dog, but best thing that she knows how to do is shed and it gets everywhere. What I like to do is have Air Doctor in my bedroom, so it's filtering out all of these allergens and filtering out all of these germs while I am asleep. The other great thing about Air Doctor's Ultra HEPA filter is that it captures germs and helps reduce airborne germs, bacteria, and viruses from up to 99.99%. Isn't that crazy? 99.99% of tested viruses and bacteria Air Doctor captures. Outside of that, you guys, they're giving you a huge discount. So this is one of the biggest discounts that we've done, and I'm super pumped about it. So if you use this link, bit.ly slash T-S-W-L-A-I-R-D-O-C, and I'll do it one more time because I know it can be a little confusing, bit.ly slash T-S-W-L-A-I-R-D-O-C, and you save $300. That's right. Isn't that crazy? $300. So the retail price normally is $629 for the Air Doctor HEPA filter. However, with this link, make sure you use that. Save this money. My goodness. Final price is $329 plus shipping. Let me know what you guys think. Let me know how you feel. It helps with allergies. It helps with pet dander. It helps with cigarette smoke. And honestly, even if you live in a place where someone used to smoke cigarettes, it's still there. You want this Air Doctor to keep you healthy and sane and thriving. All right, guys. If you're like me and you spend quite a bit on supplements each month, I have something very important to you. So if we don't know how much our body is actually retaining or what we actually need from our supplements, we're basically shooting in the dark. So it's super important to test to know exactly what your hormones and your stress and your fatigue levels are, specifically your mineral levels and your heavy metals. Let's say, I don't know, you're human and you feel stressed and exhausted and you're probably not in the mood for some fun in the bedroom or a mood to have a really deep conversation with your partner because you're tired. Well, mineral deficiency could be one of the key things. So listen to this, 96% of people had at least one mineral deficiency and about 90% had 10 deficiencies that were negatively affecting their health. Uh, so clearly there's room for improvement for basically all of us. Now back to this idea of testing. Wouldn't it be great if you knew how much you were absorbing, how much you weren't absorbing, if you're getting too much, too little, all of that? Um, otherwise, like I said earlier, you're just shooting in the dark. So knowing this allows you to save money while improving your health and you can do it all at once with one test and a consultation that pretty much pays for itself for what I spend on supplements normally. So with all that said, what I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that. After all, you can't be informed without testing, can you? So welcome 
upgraded formulas in their upgraded hair test kit and consultation, not to mention their proprietary approach to minerals, which absorb really, really well. And something that Barton, the founder, developed, which he calls stabilized nano minerals. That's so that you can clean up any of these hidden deficiencies that are affecting your metabolism, your thyroid, your adrenals, hay stress, mental performance, recovery, endurance, strength, and that elusive sleep, just to name a few. Not only that is Upgraded Formulas is a cool company that also gives back to charitywater.org. So if you've dealt with heavy metals in the past, like myself, getting this test really connects the dots for you and can be a complete game changer for feeling more naturally in the mood. And it balances your hormones while simultaneously lowering your stress levels, further helping your mind and body work together as intended, which means you'll be more easily in the mood. I mean, I am not mad at that. And ladies, this is just not for you, but let me tell you, you need it. This is also for your guy. So why is that? So testing their hair levels of their magnesium and zinc are super important for healthy sperm production, bedroom performance, balanced pH, and hormones for them as well. And during the consultation, one of their nutritionists will cover all of this with you, and it can really give you a new lens on how to have an effective addition to your self-care routine. Ideally, this is done quarterly, but it's not required, of course. And I'm going to give you a code to get you 15% off of your upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test kit and consultation. You can also check out their supplements and their minerals. I'm doing the magnesium at night because that's what I really need. And I also have the formula for my thyroid. So TSWL at checkout for 15% off. You'll go to upgradedformulas.com. Again, TSWL for 15% off. Know what your body needs. Hello, everybody. Whitney is not here with me today, but she sends her love and she'll be back soon. And we have a really exciting episode. One of my favorite thinkers. Her name is Dr. Holly Dunsworth, and she's a biological anthropologist at the University of Rhode Island, where she teaches, wait for it, new and original approaches aimed at overturning evolutionary misconceptions and outdated evolutionary dogma that people bring to the table. You know what? This is another way of saying she's a fighter. Uh, Holly Dunsworth, Dr. Holly Dunsworth uh, is an academic, but she's also a science and specifically an evolution educator. And what she does is so valuable because it really has an impact on your life. You'll see how. She began her career as a paleoanthropologist, uh, but she has a broader background that carries her interests beyond the fossil record. Okay, here's Holly's jam. She's especially interested in how the anatomical, physiological, and behavioral traits related to making, growing, and raising our offspring evolved. How the hell did all that come to be? She's also interested in how we narrate evolution, the stories we tell about evolution, and how those narratives are sometimes flawed. We're going to get into something with her that's the so-called obstetrical dilemma, and we're going to get into with her, her big beef, and mine, and Sarah Hurdy's, 
and Amy Parrish's and some other really awesome women in anthropology. This notion that men are specifically built for competition, men are naturally aggressive, and women are naturally choosy and coy. Um, So she really talks about how science and bad science uh, have really warped the cultural container that we live in and have really warped our sense of who we are. Dr. Holly Dunsworth, that was kind of a long introduction, but welcome to True Sex and Wild Love. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Wednesday. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So let's just hop into the personal aspects of this. Like I, I talk about how you're a fighter. Often I'll go on Twitter and I'll say, wow, Holly is in it. She's making her argument with her citations, with all her knowledge about evolution. And she's changing the way women and men and people think about themselves, but it's not easy. You're a fighter. I said it before and I'll say it again. Tell me how Holly does How does it encouraging? It's like, yeah, it makes me feel uh, stronger to hear. So thank you. (laughs) But I admire, (laughs) I admire it so much. I'm sure people listening who get into, to like their own fights on, um, on social media, we should start like, uh, and, a feminine, an intersectional feminist fight club for <laughs> for evolutionary biologists. <laughs> will you please, will you please be our leader? That would be really fun. I mean, I don't like the fight. I like to stir the pot, though. So yeah. I I like to really stir the pot, and I'm not afraid to be weird. Um. Yeah. Not afraid to put myself out there. I I don't really enjoy. The if the arguments go sour, yeah, but I enjoy the argument until they until or unless they go sour, and um, and yeah, and then I enjoy them if they if if they if I don't particularly like them, but if then they stimulate me to learn more and to do more, and so that's that happens. Like Jerry Coyne, for example. You guys, for those of you who don't know, tell people who Jerry Coyne, you know what? I will. Jerry Coyne is, there's no other way to say it, an extremely reactionary evolutionary biologist. Yes, he's out of this, um, he's a leader in the tradition of being against creationism and therefore like the biggest fanatic about evolution in Mm -hmm to their antagonism against creationism, the defense of the truth. And, and so... He is also a big defender of very um, entrenched, mm-hmm. disproven ideas about sexuality and reproduction yes. and gendered social and yes. sexual behaviors, I guess, right? Is a good way yes. to put it. And he, often, and he, he often goes for you... Um, and you go right back, mm-hmm. which is such a great example, um, you know, that you have often set for me about, you know, if I have a if I have a controversial point, but I have good data, you've always provided me such a good framework and model with how to proceed with that on social media. But first I want to get into, yeah. So tell us what you wanted to say about Jerry Coyne. And then I want to backtrack to how you yeah. got like this. <laughs> 
Okay. So he just came to mind because for example, um, you know, he stuck to his guns about, you know, the way things are and um, it's true. And that's the only truth there is, you know, scientifically. And, and, um, and I said, mm, I don't think so. And it, this was all on social media. And so, you know, it's just very casual, but I put out there an idea that countered his on social media and he stood his ground, didn't seem to hear much of it at all. And it made me, and he has a huge following. Yeah. A huge yep. following on social media. And he, because he has all these best-selling books and he's been doing this forever. Yeah. Um, you know, why uh, evolution is true or whatever is probably his most famous book. And so I thought if he is going to really stick to some of these old, narrow-minded, um, potentially harmful biases yeah. Yeah. of human evolution, then we can't just back down. We have to do something more. We have to do the work. In yeah. We have to fight. And so that was one of the times when, um, when you said I was a fighter, and you're a fighter too, by the way, mm-hmm. um, uh, that I actually use the word fight because at the time that this one of there was a time when I thought I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be a good professor and and mm-hmm. I'm gonna lower my expectations about the contribution I'm gonna make to the field mm-hmm. and and <laughs> time I realized you know no people who are controlling the narrative of human evolution aren't always very nice about it or good about it. I mean, but say why? I mean, I think you, I think one of your contributions is an anthropologist. I don't want to interrupt you, but we have to get into this. We have to dig into this point. People are very invested in their ostensibly academic positions about evolution. Yes. And you get into not just framing that these are culturally specific and sometimes damaging beliefs, but you really dig into why they're so invested. Okay. In, right. in these so stories. there's there's a couple reasons. And so we're still being theoretical, but first of all, there's facts of evolution, like Lucy the fossil is a yeah. fact of evolution. And then there's the stories we tell about those facts that are not the facts themselves. And stories are, as a lot of people know, are funny things. They they're they can be very complicated, but you can only say or write one thing at a time. Right. And and you only have a certain amount of time to get out as much of the complexity you're willing to admit exists. Right. Or you're willing to bore people with. And so, <laughs> and so, um, and so some of the scientists actually don't know. They don't or won't admit or haven't thought about how the stories they're telling about the facts are not the facts themselves. Right. And part of that is because these stories have so much meaning for them and make so much sense of the world for them that they seem to be the natural way. And Darwin was great at this. Um, Darwin was great at looking out in nature, explaining how it is. It certainly, he, expl- he explained it, just how it makes se- made sense to him in his station in Victorian England. And at the end of the 19th century, Oh, what a coincidence. <laughs> and um, a, a, hmm. a lot of those, sto- you know, that's not that far in the past. A lot of Darwin's stories make a lot of 
culturally intuitive, personal sense to mostly a lot of white men in our. Right. And could you just summarize for people, just break down into the simplest formula? Yeah. What those beliefs are. Like, and this, um, like men are evolved to be the leaders that selection has um, finely tuned men of our species to be the leaders, to be dominant. Look, they're taller and stronger. It's, it's okay because selection has finely tuned the women to be the nurturers, the parents, and the sex objects or not. It depends on what decade right. science you know, is narrating this. Right. Um, the sexual parents and the mm-hmm. nurturers and the, the ones with feelings. And the men mm-hmm. are, are not just great leaders and 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 great at being strong men, but they're also you know smarter, and right? The math and the coding at the Google. So um, at the Google, <laughs> that, that, see, that, yeah. The wage gap is a total myth. <laughs> Evolution, okay, baby. So <laughs> yeah, um, we just keep doing this to ourselves. Darwin was brilliant at it. He's brilliant at a lot of great things, but he was brilliant at this is not great thing. Um, and we've just been doing the same thing ever since. Right. And Darwin's formulation, correct me if I'm wrong, is that being, and he was talking about sexual selection, which goes, which yeah. is, there's natural selection and there's sexual selection. So D- Darwin was saying about sexual selection, well, females of all species are naturally coy and passive and not that interested in sex. And the males are naturally, I think he used the term courageous and pugnacious and essentially Mm -hmm. aggressive. And to your point, like douche bros, Mm -hmm. as well as academics have Mm -hmm. used this narrative to sort of naturalize their cultural dominance. And yeah, yeah, I'm just breaking that down. That we've evolved to be, yeah. I mean, you could even say sex less. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's just something right. we have to be convinced to do. Well, of course, because we could anyway get pregnant. But goodness, goodness. Well, look, absurd. so much of it is so hard to talk about because it just gets my heart racing, and then I don't even know what to do, and I just kind of black out. Um, We're going to work together on that. But yeah, this <laughs> it, what what went along with um, there's just so many ways to narrate all these sex differences. What's interesting, yeah, about what science did was I think just take over the narrative of what what myths and and mm. storytellers have been doing since myths and stories have existed, which is obsess about gender and explaining that. Um, mm. There is gender, however many your culture allows, and and there are there are ways those genders are, and there are things those genders do, and and that's you know we do that about everything, not just gender, but the the male female question has yeah. just so ancient, and yes, just came along and glommed onto it, and just. Um, they ran with it. Yeah. They ran with it to keep women in the kitchen. I'm going to just break it down. Okay. Absolutely. Listen. Yeah. No, if you go to college, thought the early evolutionary thinkers who wanted to do the evolution to help natural selection, make us better. 
They're like, women, you can't go to college because you'll take energy away from your reproductive system. Oh my God. And, you know, I often tell the story of how I was sitting at, you know, I was at the University of Michigan when Richard Rang and and Barbara Smuts were there. Mm -hmm. And I studied evolutionary biology with them. Now, this was not in a class with them that this happened, but I remember being an undergraduate sitting in a lecture and the lecturer telling us that females didn't, males, uh, it helped a male's reproductive success to mate multiply and mm-hmm. that females did not mate multiply because it didn't contribute to the reproductive <laughs> success. And I literally, I mean, I was like, I don't know if I was 19, 20, whatever. I literally was like, wait, these are my choices. I can be a woman and be asexual. I was like, I mate multiply. I know. So like either I have to be a woman. So either I'm not a woman or right. I'm a woman and something's wrong with me. And I remember I just wanted to stand up and raise my hand and say, can I have a witness that yeah. women, human women make multiply? But of course, I never could have found the nerve. Yeah. But now that I had I read your work, had I read Sarah Hurdy's work, I would have had the nerve. Yeah, to find. Yeah, I would have had the nerve to find my voice to say, hold up. But, you know, that was that was at the University of Michigan when the bioanthro and anthro departments were on fire. They were the best place to be. And this is what after years after second wave feminism, this is what they were teaching. And I have an idea. I think that we should talk about the fight you got into about height and which Uh in evolutionary biology, we have this term sexual dimorphism, which describes when males and females have different body sizes and males are larger. Mm-hmm. And so some species are basically monomorphic. Yeah, they have, males and females are similar in size. And then some, some species, there's sexual dimorphism. Mm-hmm. And this is a really good way to explain what's at stake. To Tell us about the arguments that you got into about height because you made an intervention mm-hmm. in the literature of biological anthropology and in evolutionary theory that you need to get a lot more credit for when you stepped into this argument about height and gender. Okay, so... You didn't even... I don't think you stepped into it. I think you, being Holly, Dr. Holly Dunsworth, you made an observation and then it just like blew up. I think it... I, I think I, I have to think it has to do with me being a woman growing up a girl and going through puberty. And wanting to be really tall because I was a basketball player and I had from a young and I always had dreams that I would grow up tall enough to dunk. And I didn't care that my parents did not know this. My parents were my mom's five seven, my dad's five eleven. Why would I think I was gonna grow very tall? It didn't matter. We have dreams when we're children. Dreams. And I was, you know, I experienced life where about everybody was growing at about the same pace until puberty happens. And then girls' bodies change like sideways instead of vertically. And, you know, we stop gaining height and boys just keep growing. Right. And then they start being able to dunk by senior year at my school, at least. Like that's when the dunking started to happen. And by my senior year, you know, I was done growing. I had been done growing for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
right around the time we get our first periods is when we really experience this, right? We, and I was lucky enough to um, see in an x-ray, the fusion of my growth plates probably right about when it happened in my, in my knee, at least. Okay. And it all happened at different times in your body schedule. Mm -hmm. But, um, I saw it in my knee because I had, I tore my ACL running track and they x-rayed it and they showed me, look, you're done growing. And that broke my heart, but I was, and I was lucky to see the moment, you know, right after the moment it happened. And I was, Mm. so I was 15 done growing. All the boys kept growing. This is my lived experience. And so even though I, like you, went to a really uh, great grad school and had some great professors and I was just soaking up and not pushing back on all the traditional evolutionary biology, sociobiology, evolutionary psychology, which is newer, not as traditional, but it's out of all of that. I was just soaking it up. And then I was learning to teach it all as a teaching assistant. And, um, I was soaking it up because like, that's as much as you can do to keep up in grad school. It is. It really is. And then you get let loose into the wild when you become a professor after you defend your dissertation. Yeah. You alone have to teach all of the things, not just Mm. the assistant type stuff. Mm. You find yourself telling all of these stories out of the traditional canon of human evolution, like the one about height, And then you start to slowly, if you're me, it's been years, but slowly second guess it. And when, but you don't necessarily teach it as staunchly as you see it um, represented online. So here it is. Men and women, well, okay. Human males and females. Yeah. All around the world have the same um, sex differences in height. Males on average are taller than females on average. Everywhere in the world. Right. Okay. And what happens is everybody grows about the same way until puberty and then girls stop growing and boys keep growing. Um, people have explained this and still do. And it's in the books <laughs> as um, being to do with selection for sexual selection is the overarching yep. idea. It's competition between men has driven up height in men because the biggest ones have won the most sex. Now that's not how they say it in the nice up, you know, <laughs> uptight evolutionary biology text, but that's what they mean. That is what they mean. You guys the big, like breaking it down. That is how we interpreted winners. it. Right. Yes. That the, that, so the traditional explanation has been, and you can see you guys how it's built on the found the house is built on the foundation that Darwin built about mm-hmm. aggressive, pugnacious, courageous males and passive, coy, choosy females. That of course men are taller. They have to be tall to compete with each other to get the coy, choosy, disinterested, asexual female. I just wanted to there you go. break that Thank down you. for people. Keep doing that. No, and, go, go, and Dr. Donsworth. So, and and men are taller than women is proof that their ancestors were badass winners of sex. <laughs> right. Thank you for over that. Over the shorter, weaker losers. So just looking at height differences in humans, sex differences in height, yeah. it has been, been evidence for this story that ancestral males have brought us to where, like 
winning big, strong men in the past have brought us to 2021, you know? Yeah. So this, this masculinity is just evolutionarily, um, it's, it's, it's like evolutionary energy. It's like the flow. It's like the force. It's and, like the big dick, the big dick energy of evolution yes, creates, creates tall, awesome men mm, who will compete go. for those cho- choosy coy females. Okay. All right. So, and Dr. Dunsworth is going to mess with this narrative so hard. Right. So um, the, the thing is, if you actually look at how bones grow, and so I did. I, if you look at the, the latest research explaining how bones grow, like what causes bones to grow, they don't talk about sex differences. There's a human skeleton. And in all human skeletons, there's a lot of factors that go into bone growth. And there are thousands of genes associated with bone growth. Okay. It's just incredibly complex. But one of the stars of the story of human bone growth is estrogen. 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 Guess what's not in the story or is the very um, (laughs) minor player down is testosterone. Testosterone. It's not even, it's got to be in the mix, but it is not directly part of the story. And it's, it's not even worth talking about because I don't even understand. Right. It's not in these the cutting edge reviews about how human skeletons grow. And here's how the estrogen is the, the star of the story. Here's how in all bodies, estrogen stimulates long bone growth. And then if you have more estrogen, it closes the growth plates. Okay. Oh, when typically developing girls' bodies, you know, not everybody, but typically developing girls' bodies reach um, puberty. They have so much estrogen coming out of their ovaries. They have eight times more than boys of the same age at that point. That doesn't just give them, in a lot of girls, a little growth spurt. So it sends them into a maybe a growth spurt and then it closes their growth plates. So just after girls reach menarche, which is a fancy way to say have their first period, yeah. stop growing. and. Um, then boys keep growing because they don't have the ovaries to stop. <laughs> oh God, you guys, did, yeah. Did you, they did everybody hear that reframe? <laughs> right. <laughs> they just, so. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is amazing because then your conclusion is what made me fall down. Um, are you asking me to, to yeah. quote myself? Yeah. I haven't read that paper in like <laughs> you basically something about it's something about um the human body is not a blueprint for the patriarchy. Oh, slam dunk. Mm-hmm. Slam dunk. And this paleoanthropologist who's also an evolutionary biologist got there by talking about bones and how we had been telling fucked up stories about bones and height. I'm sorry, let me just say this again. Until Dr. Dunsworth's intervention, and by the way, I'm gonna, I call her Holly, but please always call women, especially women of color and people of color by their honorific. Holly and I are like colleagues and friends, Mm -hmm. but 
but I'm thinking Dr. Dunsworth all the time when I talk to her because I admire her awesome uh, credentials and expertise. Just a side note. Okay, what Dr. Dunsworth did is she took, she looked at this narrative about height and everybody thought that the narrative of height proved what they already thought, which is that guys have to be awesome sexual competitors and the best ones are the tallest ones. And then sexual selection acts on their height and they, because they get the, they get to nail women and impregnate us. Right. And then that's why the tall men are the awesome men. Dr. Dunsworth's intervention is the reason women are shorter on average according to all the worldwide ethnographic data, which is what Holly and I like to look at, the reason that women are on average shorter than men is not that men are more awesome and have to compete for women, but that women have this capacity to reproduce, to have babies, to gestate. And estrogen plays a huge role in that. So Dr. Dunsworth is so modest. Sometimes I feel like you don't, I've, I've talked to sex researchers who sometimes are like, oh, I didn't realize that's what I was saying. You know exactly what you're saying, but it is so big. Like this is an intervention to me. This is like a Sarah Hurdy kind of quality intervention because you're saying, stop. You're saying if you, if you step back and you look at the actual science of, of bone growth, Look at the actual science instead of the pseudoscience that we came up with because we because we were retrofitting our bias about height in it, males. It, and it's also easier to generate stories about things we know little about. Which yeah. and these stories originated um, back in Darwin's time or maybe before when we didn't know much about bone biology and growth and hormones. <laughs> and it's time to catch up. Yes. So it's fun now. It's fun to take a look at these stories um, in light of all of the new evidence that wonderful, like just teams and teams and teams of scientists and other scholars and researchers have, you know, uh, uh, this evidence that they've amassed over the decades. Right. These stories were first told scientifically as if they were fact. Um, I I just want to suggest two things too. Um, estrogen is really important in male reproduction as well. Yes. And, and you have too much, you know, probably more about this than me, but if you have too much, it's bad. If you have too little, it's bad. I mean, not bad, but not going to get passed on to the next generation is what I mean. So, right. um, so if, if, if natural selection or sexual selection were to target estrogen levels in men to get them to be even taller, you know, like, it could mess up their ability to pass on their tallness or to have any like genetic legacy. So right. not like it's not like it makes it's not like there's an easy way to think that selection could just act on men's tallness. We have to think of the human body, the human right. skeleton. Estrogen matters in everybody, not just for our bones, but for everybody's reproduction as well. Yes. Um and you know, yeah, go ahead. And uh and the other thing that I, you might want to, I might, I need to tell you, every time I share this uh, work, I've been asked to give talks a lot after this paper and all during the pandemic and on Zoom from my house. And um, it's, it's a, some, a guy always asks, says, but women prefer taller men. 
but every, you know, women prefer taller men. And that I can see how some people would think that's just re, like really hard to that person. Like that that completely squares with sexual selection and that um needs to be addressed. But um I don't know. I'm curious what I, I know what I said to him. Yes. Or what I say to these guys, because it's been multiple. Um is first of all. On average, men are taller than women. Saying you prefer, prefer tall men is like saying you prefer a man. If Slam dunk. If you are looking for one, if that's what you want. And yeah. It's really not saying anything. And there are also, as you know better than I do, really powerful cultural expectations on people as they are looking for mate, uh, sex partners, for life partners, and also, people will say things on a dating app or in a survey, and then they will fuck something completely different, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so I mean, I don't, um, if, yeah. If they were to make that argument about height, they would have to argue that tall men always prefer tall women. I mean, they would have to make, I'm especially interested in your last point that you made, that people will say something on a dating app or ask for something or feel like they're supposed to want something and then fuck something totally different is the way that you put it, which I love. love. Yes. 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 Or or be turned on by, and you know, this is really basic that when those people ask you that question, basically they're forgetting that, you know, female sexuality, particularly, you know, women evolved to seek out sexual pleasure, not great reproductive partners. So, right. you know, the, the playground is going to be very wide. And are you going to tell me that all tall men only prefer tall women? As a petite woman, I happen to know not because all kinds of things come into play, not just reproduction, power play, mm-hmm. right? Or just like maybe mm-hmm. you had a petite, like a uh, female woman on television and, you know, you, you developed a crush on petite women. So anyway, and it's so funny how people narrate it when they ask you that question, they're narrating it through Darwin's eyes, but right. choosy coy females right. choose tall men. Right. Yes. And it, yeah, it's back on the women. You made us tall. <laughs> like, so there's both. There's the yeah. men who are badass sex competitors, you know, <laughs> self, they're self-made men. You can tell this story that way, or you can tell the same story with powerful women who choose who they want to have sex with, have chosen the tall winners. Right. Um, and I don't like either of those stories. <laughs> Yeah, well, and you don't because, like either of those stories because you're a scientist who looked at yeah. <laughs> plate, at bone plates and bone growth. But to be honest, like as a human, it is my bias. I just don't like those stories because I don't I don't want those to be how we narrate our our evolution. I, I don't I don't I don't like them. Um, so I am biased. I am looking for evidence to take them down, not because of science, but because of personal bias. Because Yeah. And you know, this is such a great thing. I think that Sarah Hurdy said when I interviewed her for my book on true, she said, you know, it's a little bit of a trick question when people say, well, as, as an intersectional feminist, like, 
isn't your science biased? Mm -hmm. And uh, what Dr. Hurdy said to me was, and you guys, she wrote a book called The Woman That Never Evolved. And she wrote another book called Mother Nature. And she put forth some really important ideas in evolutionary biology. And she was one of Dr. Dunsworth's mentors. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things she said was, well, that's kind of a trick question because um, sure, I personally um, am interested in this kind of science, but what intersectional feminist science does is it goes out to correct bias, mm-hmm. it, right? So right. I don't think you're just biased. I think you're also a good scientist who is like, I'm seeing some just so stories here, um, you know, being used as cover for um, why the wage gap is natural, why hypersexualizing Black women is natural, uh, right. why, you know, uh, tall, competitive, uh, successful men are always tall, which they're not. So yeah. I don't know if it's about your personal bias, I, but I hear you about how we want, it's not just that, I, I think that we want not just palatable versions of evolution, but we want powerful, uh, more accurate ones that are yes. less impacted by centuries of bias that people don't even see. I mean, right. the thing about, about, about your paper about height is that it was a huge shift. It was sort of like something, I'll say it again, that it was almost like Sarah Hurdy's infanticide hypothesis. It's like nobody could see these facts, these things that were going on uh, because the distorting lens of culture and gender bias was so strong. So let's pivot And you guys, Holly, what is the name of your paper on height? Because we're going to put it in the show notes. Um, It's it's not that exciting. Um, I had to revise it to get it published. Um, Is it called Douche Bros? You're not all that. I mean, one of my reviewers said this goes against everything. I teach my students and then they rejected it, but it still got published. Yeah. It's called something like expanding the evolutionary explanations for sex differences in human height and pelvis or something like that. Oh, right. Because we are going to pivot now to the obstetrical dilemma, which is another place where you were just being a good scientist, Mm -hmm. looking at previous bias and trying to make the science less biased and more accurate. And uh, you freaking stepped in it. And I I loved you for that. I mean, you have this penchant, I think kind of like I do. We just were like, no, here are the data, right? And we present it and and then we're stepping in it. We just step in it. I think, and I think you'll agree while we're doing it, we're just really curious and learning and it's really fulfilling and satisfying. And um, we're doing what we do. Amen. We realize once like we expose, we reveal our ideas or we, you know, other people are exposed to them. We realize, we realize how, how, um, how holy shit we stepped in it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, that way while you're doing the work, it feels like you're just learning and you're having breakthroughs and you're, it's, it's, it's really rewarding. And, um, it feels like just, our what we do we do research right. we learn and we write and we think yes um but 
good goodness, you know, you and I, we, we, we think some out, <laughs> out there thoughts, I guess, <laughs> compared to the established ones. Um, <laughs> and I celebrated you not to turn it away from, from the obstetrical dilemma, but I, I want to say this. Um, I celebrated you in my chapter in a most interesting problem, the edited volume by Jeremy De Silva. Uh-huh. I celebrated you in my chapter when I quoted you saying that we are sexual anarchists. <laughs> I think it was. I wanted to make sure to thank you for. Oh, that's so nice of you. And I have to in turn. Um, I think that turn of phrase I was. I quoted and I cited um, Daniel Bergner, and. That's great. But you know, you know, it's amazing. I also cited your story about the bonobos at the San Diego Zoo. Oh, God bless. I quoted guess, it. Guess I who's said coming it in here. the Darwin book. I said it in the Darwin book. And then I said something like, Darwin's book wasn't exactly PG rated either or something like that. <laughs> Those bonobos are rated X. Guess who's coming to my house today in Los Angeles? Um, Amy Parrish. No way. Yes. I never met her. Oh, oh my God. Wonderful. She was a guest on True Sex and Wild Love. And, you know, she was very big and important in my book on True. And you know how big and important. Yeah. And she's also a mentee of Dr. Hurdy. Oh, of course. That's great. And um, so like, and, and you guys who are listening, you might remember that Dr. Amy Parrish coined the term Darwinian feminist. Oh, fun. Yeah. And so, um, wow, I'm going to make us t-shirts. But yes, when you mess with the idea, like you messed with, here's what you did. Mm -hmm. You messed Mm -hmm. with height, Mm -hmm. which is for everybody, it's a marker of quote, natural unquote, gender differences. Mm -hmm. Right. And I messed with the, uh, and, and so in doing so you messed with the coy, choosy female slash aggressive male. Mm-hmm. hypothesis. And then I messed with the notion that uh, women evolved to seek out and lock down a single partner. Right. Because and I- Men are the sex machines and women are and, the- Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and I based that in Dr. A lot of it in Dr. Hurdy's work and the work of subsequent people looking at sexual selection. By the way, I want to say how interesting it is that- uh, Rick Prom, who's a friend of mine, uh, mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Evolution of Beauty. Mm-hmm. And what I really objected to in that book was that it got so much play in part because people seemed to think that nobody had been working on sexual selection and that sexual selection compared to natural selection was this like dusty old idea and we have to dust it off. Yeah. Now, it's nice that Rick Prom helped put sexual selection into the mainstream, but mm-hmm. it's not like Sarah Hurdy and other women primatologists, evolutionary biologists, women who at the time called themselves sociobiologists, they have been working on sexual selection theory since the 70s. Yeah. The early 70s. All right. I just had to put that out there. Okay. So you messed with height. Yeah. Which is your way of messing with uh passive versus yeah. aggressive. And, and I messed really with I messed with monogamy, which was the way of, and sexual pleasure. So, okay, let's pivot. Yeah, yeah. You need Uh, to already, but I I took it back and I'm sorry. No, don't apologize. Let's talk about 
the soi-disant obstetrical dilemma, because this is another place where Dr. Holly Dunsworth (laughs) just being like, do, 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 let me do some good science. (laughs) Then fucking stepped in a nest of vipers and pissed off so many people. But you know, I think the pissing people off is a sign, not just that you have hit a sensitive spot, but that you're making sense. You're fucking making you, sense because you you can feel pretty gaslit while it's happening. And if you say I'm making sense, that's really nice because yeah, um, yeah. not always what I, the kind of feedback a person right. gets. <laughs> right. I mean, I like to say to people like, look how controversial and out there Madonna seemed for BDSM, for like putting BDSM in videos in the nineties. And now BDSM is like basically mainstream. That's kind of a weird analogy, but I love a pop culture analogy. And I feel like your height hypothesis, um, are are we going to call it? I don't know what we're going to call it. Um, I don't know what you call it, but, um, okay. Well, we need to coin a term for it. We do. Um, but you know, your, your, important interventions and revisions to our thinking about height and gender differences and sex differences, um, you know, is going to shift. It will shift the culture. It will take time. Other people will have to write papers about it, but it will shift the culture. And we'll see that just like people thought BDSM was like so countercultural and crazy and weird. And now it's so mainstream that you can like go to H&M and find a whip, I think. Um, (laughs) Or at least like blindfolds and like nice silky things to tie people's hands with. There, these. This is how these shifts happen, and you're. I believe that you're contributing. You have contributed to an unfurling cultural shift when you made this intervention about the obstetric, the so-called obstetrical dilemma. Can you tell people what yeah. is this, the so-called obstetrical dilemma, yeah. and so, what got you interested in picking at it? This was a project that um, that took place earlier in time compared to the height differences one, but it led to that. It wasn't like another oh, okay. first step. So what happened was I was I was doing what you said. I was do 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 doing my science around. Um, what happened was uh, I thought uh, Alex the obstetrical dilemma hypothesis is is something that everybody knows, but they don't necessarily know the name of it, and it's because everybody out there, including people, professionals, um, not everyone, most everybody thinks that humans are so helpless at birth because we're born early. We're born early to escape the narrow, bipedally adapted human pelvis. This thing, this space that can't get any bigger or else women couldn't walk. And that's a quote from how this is termed. Okay, do you hear that, everybody? That supposedly there's this dilemma. If women's pelvises were any wider than they are, we wouldn't be able to walk. But that means that we have a narrower pelvis and that means that our offspring have to be born altricial, which is just mm -hmm. a fancy term for helpless and really uh, kind of like preformed. Right. So the idea is that Holly's talking about, just so everybody's clear on this, is like supposedly there's this problem. My hips can only be so wide, but my infant uh, should be as developed as possible. And here's a trade off, basically. Right. So the dilemma is that 
um, it's solved by the early birth and having, you know, useless babies. <laughs> we're good at that. You know, we're, we, we're smart enough. We have good hands. We can figure it out. And that's the, that's the price we pay for good bipedalism and big brains. Um, the big brains of the babies are setting them up for having even bigger brains as adults. And the bipedal pelvis has just got to be narrow. So, um, oh yeah, I forgot that piece of it. The babies have these giant heads because yeah. of so, their big brains. Absolutely true. Babies have big brains. The, yep. pel- the pelvis is narrow. There is a tight fit at birth. Babies seem useless when they're born. They seem to take a really long time to grow up. But why can't they be born later when, you know, like a horse, you know? Yeah. Or even relatively speaking, like a chimp, which can at least cling. And they can't though. They actually, they are not good at chimp neonates. Oh, I didn't know that. They take some time and mom coddles them and holds on and she can, she can like, she can be a tripod, you know, a tripod for a while. Okay. Not good at clinging for a while. And they're not great at thermoregulating for a while. So they need to be next to her and using her body warmth. Okay. Um, so it's it's un, it's monkeys who are better at clinging right. at birth. And, Thank yeah, you. Yes. Thank you for so, correcting me. So there's a spectrum, right? As you would assume, um, these this idea, the obstetrical dilemma, which includes the solution, right? It's been solved. Babies are born early. Um, it's old and um, it dates back to officially to Sherwood Washburn where when he just kind of tossed it in a, um, an article full of a whole bunch of good ideas in like 1960. And um, that was a that was a long time before people knew a lot about primates and knew a lot about, about um, like, for example, the state of development of neonatal apes and how vulnerable and useless mm-hmm. are they are. Yeah. Not like us or it was a long time before um, it was back before Title IX. <laughs> and so um, women's wide, and it was when anthropologists were super overly focused on bones and sex differences in them. Like, <laughs> and they were like, women suck at sports. Women have wide hips. That must be why. They oh God. Worse bipeds. And they would be even worse if they got any wider to have an easier childbirth, you know, an end birth, a baby that's more developed. So you can see how these, you know, back decades and decades ago, how this obstetrical dilemma hypothesis hypothesis seemed fine, reasonable, pretty obvious. And then even in what, 1999, when I joined graduate school and I started teaching um, the labs, the discussion sections as a teaching yeah. for the intro human evolution class, and I get to teach the obstetrical dilemma you know, that I had learned as an undergrad in my osteology class that's holding a female pelvis in my <laughs> one hand and a neonatal cranium in the other, and they don't fit. And I'm like, oh, right. I don't want to have kids. Um, <laughs> the obstetrical dilemma as a teaching assistant in grad school, it's so logical and elegant and amazing and students love it. And yeah. A co-teacher of a co-graduate student of mine said to me, I love teaching the obstetrical dilemma because it converts creationists. Mm, okay. So much sense it converts creationists. And that really struck me. <laughs> of course it did. So I started to look for the evidence. I but I thought I would find it. You see, I just wanted to know more about it. So yeah. I would just find all the evidence. Yeah. And then I didn't. <laughs> you didn't find evidence. I, no, yeah, come on. So we're not born early. 
We're not born early. Um, <laughs> we have longer gestations than any other, the other apes. Um, we have bigger brained babies. Our babies have brains the size of adult chimpanzees. So they're absolutely bigger um, than the brains of neonatal apes, right? We have really big brained, really fat, really big babies at the end of long pregnancies. None of that says suggests that we cut pregnancy short or we invest little too little in it and that we're born early. And so, um, I mean, there's so much to the story that like, you know, we can unpack. Like, okay, I want to unpack one thing really quickly, okay. which is Washburn. Yes. Getting this idea because women were uh, socialized to, and because we do have um, like neurochemical and biological uh processes uh for for parenting behaviors but so right. do men but washburn observing this may well have been thinking in the back or even the front of his mind yeah well you see women are naturally caregivers and so these babies are super duper altricial because women are natural caregivers and he gets into this chicken egg mm-hmm. thing where his gender bias yes. uh, is inflecting his science. Okay, go on. Yeah, yeah, that's, yes. Also, I think another bias that might have helped the story to stick for so long is that at least at first, a lot of people who were telling this story had relatively little experience with babies. And they, and we didn't also have the science of babies, you know, that we have now, thanks to a lot of uh, leaders like women who are doing the science, we know babies are not as they are. They are clever, manipulative, brilliant little maggots. You know, they are amazing. They are not, there's nothing about them that suggests they're born early. They just, they're bad at grasping onto us. Well, they're fat. They have, they have allocated, you know, resources to growing and, and developing other skills and other organs. Um, they don't have grasping feet. We lost those over three and a half yeah. million years ago. Right. Um, you know, we have hands that can hold them. We're good at holding them. Some people wrap them up for like two years and park them and keep them yes. wrapped, unwrap just the bottom to let them pee and poop and then wrap it back up and keep them like cocooned for years while they're they're useless. So I mean, sorry, I think a lot of people um, underestimated, underestimated babies too. Let's say one other thing about babies is those little fuckers evolved to elicit so much care because they look like little fucking pandas. Yes. (laughs) And, And your mentor, Sarah Hurdy, talks about this, about how babies evolved to basically like grift us. Yes. Like the adipose in the cheeks. Yeah. And, and I the, completely surrendered. And, and the big eyes. Yeah. They look, <laughs> they look so cute. And Sarah Hardy was like, oh yeah, they look so cute because they evolved to elicit <laughs> fucking care from you. And it's they funny evolved. That you called them panda bears. Teddy yeah. Your pandas. Kevin, my husband, used to call Abe my teddy bear. <laughs> like there's a reason I for that you got a teddy bear until I gave birth to a teddy bear. So like if you have if 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 babies have if basically selection if you'll let me say this and you can refine mm-hmm. it 
mm-hmm. has worked in such a way that babies basically evolved an appearance that elicits care. They don't fucking need to grasp anything. Right. No. They, if you're a cute little great. panda bear baby with fat cheeks. Yeah. Human babies are, are doing great. I'd say they're pretty successful. You know what? I, I, I see them as these grifters who are like grasping. Fuck it. Like it's easier to be cute. Yes. And then I elicit care and then somebody holds me. I don't got to grasp. I know that's not how evolution works, but. You you know, we're connecting with their face and our, what we imagine they're thinking. So, and we, we hold them close. Why do they need to grasp? I love, I love your take on it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, when you look at how successful humans are, just in terms of how many of us there are, if you want to just be, you know, that basic. Um, I don't think thinking about babies as like somehow deficient or birth being somehow or gestation and pregnancy being somehow truncated or cut short or like there being this dilemma that needed to be solved. None of that fits. And Mm. when it's just, when I found, when I figured out that there was no solution, we're not born early. I could unravel all the other, I felt like I could unravel or at least question and be skeptical of all the other assumptions and pieces that go into the the rest of the dilemma portion of it. Because mm-hmm. if there's no solution, then there's no dilemma Yeah, in the first place. Basically, the way you started as a scientist was you said, wait a second, for there to be an obstetrical dilemma, we have to have buy-in that infants are extremely dependent and incompetent and they're, and that they are born super early. And you're like, but look at them developmentally. They're, it's not that they're born early. Mm-hmm. It's that they're born in, in a way they're eliciting caregiving. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting questions to ask of human babies. And because um, they seem in many ways, very different from babies of other primates or other mammals. Right. But, those questions don't need to be framed with this overarching bad idea that they're somehow born early because the the mother's hips were too small. Okay, and once you take out the idea that they're born early, you take out the idea that they were born early because of the pelvis. Right, because women's pelvis are compromised. That's the word. They're no, they're they're multitasking. They can walk and they can give birth and they can hold in their organs and they can have sex, you know, and they can do all kinds of things, right? They can, <laughs> they're, but the, the the framing of the obstetrical dilemma is that women's bodies are compromised. The male pelvis isn't as narrow and look, they are great at walking and running. They win all the ribbons and the trophies and, you know, and women, uh, not so much. So, because <laughs> they have to give birth and, you know, they can't get any wider or, you know, everybody would go extinct. And it it just, it all seems like it makes sense until you start to unpack it. Okay. And the other thing to unpack is in, in, or, in order to have the obstetrical dilemma be a thing, you would have to ignore so much evidence, like women uh, running in marathons. Right. Like women, like my friend, Dorica Mambaleo being a track star, right. women, you have to ignore so much evidence to hold on to the obstetrical dilemma. Have you seen Alicia Montano running um, while like 
over 24 weeks pregnant, very visibly pregnant. Right. Uh, maybe even later in her pregnancy, sprinting the 200 meters. Wow. Um, yes. <laughs> so it's not just endurance athletes who are running marathons faster, you know, than most men can, or who are even doing it while they're lactating. I learned that from Jerry De Silva. Um, and they stop <sighs> every so often to pump breast milk. Um, there are there are the sprinting women too. So I mean, <laughs> it's um, it's 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 while it's while you're pregnant, while you're not, your pelvis is great for doing whatever it is you want to do with your body <laughs> in most circumstances. Um, Anna Warner is one of the scientists who has tried to find evidence, you know, in any way you can possibly test that somehow this the wider or the women's pelvis, because there's a lot of overlap. Like, mm-hmm. you know, men and women's pelvis aren't, you know, dichotomous. They're not dimorphic. There's overlap in the differences. But the she tried to find out if wider or women's pelvis somehow are worse for walking and running. Like, could you put them on the treadmill and and um, measure their um, the cost of their locomotion, like through how much oxygen it's they're burning to do so? And could you predict that cost by, you know, how wide their hips are? If you if you can get that measurement from MRI scans. And she did that. And you can't, you can't predict how someone, how costly someone's locomotion will be by the morphology, the wideness of their birth canal. So um, it's it's very hard so far to buy in to this old idea once you start to really think about it. But it's easy to buy into it if you just hear it because it's so logical. (laughs) And also it's everywhere. There are people like Harvey Karp who sells this parenting philosophy that you should treat your baby like a fetus because it still is. It's born a fetus. It's early. Um, It's an early mammalian birth or primate birth. No, I mean, it might be great to treat your kid like a fetus. Maybe that's a very caring way to go about parenting, but it's not, um, you know, that's not based in evolutionary fact. Right. So, so what happened when you said, okay, and tell, so tell us your intervention was there is no obstetrical dilemma because babies are not being born early. Yep. Now, then, what, I, then you can unpack a lot of other things like women's hips aren't worse for walking. And um, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wanted to just give an example of how uh, that that pseudoscience, I'm not even going to say that it was science inflected by ideology, the pseudoscience of the um, so-called obstetrical dilemma. I want to give people examples of how it plays out in their everyday life. Great. I Okay. Do you have some? Yeah, I do. Um, I remember being told in the 80s, it may have been in the 90s. I remember reading in a magazine that running was bad for my reproductive organs and that I wasn't designed to run. I, I was like, now it was like when I was told that females don't mate multiply and that human women don't mate multiply. And I was like, wow, I guess my option is that, that I'm not a woman. Well, I was running five, six miles a day when I read this. Was I actually not doing that? Was I, oh, was I just some 
freak of nature that I was able to do it. And like you, I developed a very like skeptical um, gaze on theories about women evolving a specific way because I knew that I could run six miles a day. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) then I went to a doctor and the doctor sort of like confirmed, yeah, running is not the best thing uh, for your reproduction. It's not good for your reproductive organs. You're jo- oh, I was told that I was jarring my uterus <laughs> and my ovaries. They were getting super jarred by all the running. I wonder if that's what my coach was imagining when he said I couldn't play soccer on the boys' team because it would um, because of my uterus. I was ten, and that's how it was done back then. There weren't so- girls' soccer teams, but all the other teams had girls on them and I wanted to be on ours. And he said, no, because of my uterus. Well, this is how the obstetrical like we dilemma, the, the obstetrical dilemma got weaponized against us and became a coercive tactic so that we would not try to participate in spaces that were gendered male because that was too yeah. disturbing, right? Yeah. Okay, so so tell us some other... Okay, absolutely. I know... I. It, these stories have to matter. You've just given great examples. Um, they have to matter. And so I, I don't have evidence because this would be incredibly hard to, I think also it would take methods that I'm not trained in. It would be hard to demonstrate this, but I think it's very possible that obstetrical dilemma ideas contribute to, um, birthers fears of childbirth and then they are increasing likelihood of them accepting interventions during childbirth rather than being um, encouraged to carry out physiologic birth or vaginal birth, if that's what they're, they would really like to do. I think it maybe contributes to their fears and also to it discourages them when the, you don't need discouragement. That's the one of the times in your life where you need anything but. And if there are these little thoughts, these nagging thoughts in your mind, like, like we evolved to need intervention in birth, for example. The cesarean is an evolutionary imperative. So I might as well give up and it hurts so badly. I might as well let them do the thing they've been asking me for four hours that they could do it. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, or warning me for four months. I might as well just schedule my cesarean, right? Uh, just And just not even try. I'm just not even going to try because evolution's working against me. So on the side of the pregnancy, uh. And I'm, I I think it's discouraging people. I think it has that power, Um, even if it's part of all of it. And then like all, you know, all of the problems we have, uh, all the challenges people have um, when they're pregnant and facing childbirth. Right. Um, I think I want to, I want to say something. It's taught in medical school. It's It's taught in medical medical school. school. This is what I want to say, Holly. I want everybody listening to tell your OBGYN mm-hmm. to read Dr. Holly Dunsworth's paper on the so-called obstetrical dilemma that isn't. Mm-hmm. And I want you guys to help bring this really important science about your lives into the mainstream so that doctors are more likely to factor it in and have a better understanding of your body. And so they're not leaning on these just so stories about evolution that they don't even know they're leaning on. Tell your doctors to read this paper. Yeah. And read the paper yourself. What's the name of the paper, Holly? There is I'm no just gonna put this in well, I and I you, there's an open access version I can give you a link for. Um, there is no obstetrical dilemma. That's what I called it. 
That's great. Oh, wow. No wonder you pissed everybody off. Yeah. I love that. I thought, you know what? It was just a statement of fact. And then people lost their shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I thought that would mean I wouldn't have to write about it anymore. And that maybe it would make, it would convince anybody um, if I titled it that way and still hasn't worked. (laughs) So I'm still waiting. I'm still hoping, but um, we'll see. Yeah, that's not, well, you know what? Because Holly, (laughs) let's face it. When I write the things that I write about, say most recently monogamy, or you write the things that you write um, about the obstetrical dilemma, let's be clear. We are not just fucking with people's ideas about sexuality or people's Mm -hmm. ideas about pelvises. We are fucking with ideas that are foundational Mm -hmm. uh, to our civilization. The obstetrical dilemma is a fundamental idea in Western civilization. (laughs) Just like you're like, this master narrative is not all that. I mean, I, yeah, when you say it that way, it really comes down to how people imagine like the natural order of things and how things are naturally and what they get to take for granted and what gets to be common sense. And it can be really disrupting and annoying (laughs) when people ask you to question just common sense, like things you just don't want to have to think about, things that also make sense to you. Um, I think, I think when you or I, or anybody asks them to, to question those things, it can, uh, it can stir up some negative emotions. (laughs) It can stir up some negative emotions. I want to, we have to end. We didn't talk about race and your interventions, um, about how science has, uh, told the story of race. We need to have you on again to talk about that. Okay. Um, that's going to be a totally different podcast, but I want to end, uh, with a quote, something that you said that I thought would be so helpful, uh, to our listeners. Um, and maybe you could just make, uh, uh, an observation about it. Okay. You know, you talked about uh, that we are primates and that we're a sexual species. And then you talked about uh, what else we've done. Uh, This is a quote from Dr. Dunsworth. With our interventions of virgin worship, marriage, castration, contraception, fertility technology, and genetic engineering, the human primate experiences sex in an entirely different way from any other animal enmeshed in all kinds of cultural and emotional networks and significance. That to me just says so much uh, about your work and is so informative uh, for people who want to go forth and be sexual. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And they should. (laughs) So uh, I want to make sure that we have in the show notes all the ways that people uh, can engage with Dr. Holly Dumsworth's work. Could you tell people where they can find you on social media, Holly? Sure. Um, if you, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I had to leave there. Yeah. Goodbye. Cause all the crazy anti-vaxxers. I had to go back when the Brett Kavanaugh hearing was happening. Yep. And that too, that just, I, that caused me to have some health problems. And, um, 
So I'm on Twitter though. And that's a great place. Mostly. Uh, at Just at Holly Dunsworth on Twitter is where you can find me. I'm going to try to persuade you to come on Instagram, which is an ecology of pretty pictures. I'm on Instagram, but I'm private because I post a little bit about my six-year-old. Well, we can do a Polly Dunsworth um, anthropologist feminist fight club one. Yes. And because Instagram is the land of pretty pictures. Twitter is the land of arguments. Instagram is the land of pretty pictures and people going behind your back and trying to get you shadow banned. So it'll be a whole other ecology (laughs) for you and a whole other audience. And I, a lot of um, True Sex and Wild Love listeners are on uh, Instagram. And uh, I just think it would be a whole new fun audience for you beyond the True Sex and Wild Love people. I mean, Instagram would be a great place for you. And so would TikTok and you you and I should talk about that. Okay, I'd love to talk about it. Um, And I love you. And I, I love, love you too. <laughs> I love your work. It's so important. Just thank you for always stepping in shit. Oh, and thank you. I, <laughs> I know that you've made me braver. So thank you. <laughs> like I said, it's it's the feminist anthropology fight club. And I'm mm-hmm. so glad to be in it with you. Um yeah, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell Amy Parrish that I spoke to today and she's gonna be excited. Please tell her I said a hello and I can't wait to meet her one day. Yeah, you will. Maybe we'll FaceTime you later. That'd be fun. Okay. My phone number. Okay. Okay. So everybody, you know where to find Dr. Holly Dunsworth. Holly, what about the book? Oh, I'm not, it's like, um, it's kind of like my flair. <laughs> I'm at the point where I've had enough rejections of the version that I'm, that I've changed, that I've revised, that I'm not, I don't really like talking about my book at this moment. I, I have a great book coming out, but who knows when. Um, The pandemic really changed how I think about finishing projects. Um, It will happen, but um, it's going to be a very different take on human evolution. Very weird. Uh, Suffice it to say. And go to the show notes to get links to Dr. Dunsworth's articles. We'll put Mm -hmm. some lectures in there if you provide them to us because people just want to watch you talk too. That's also really important. I've got a couple of those. Great. Great. Okay. Dr. Dunsworth, Dr. Holly Dunsworth, thank you so much for being here with us today. And thank you for changing the way we think about gender and evolution. And thank you for holding science accountable and pointing out when ideology is wrecking our science. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.